This is episode number 14 of the Creative Strings Podcast with Mark Simos, the author of Songwriting Strategies, A 360-Degree Approach. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Creative Strings Podcast. Today I have a special guest, Mark Simos. I used to see my friend Mark in the halls of the Berkeley College of Music when I taught there for a few years. We would pass in the hallways. He was always a super nice guy, and I heard a lot of great things about him from other fiddle players who were into learning old-time fiddle music and roots music and related things. But I came to realize that Mark is more than just a roots fiddle guy. He's actually into songwriting, tune writing, composition. And so when we ran into each other at a great event called Fiddle Hell uh, this fall, he gave me a copy of his book, Songwriting Strategies, A 360-Degree Approach. And I loved it. And he said, let's talk about this, you know. And I was like, absolutely, we got to get you on. And the whole thing behind Creative Strings is about promoting creativity. Obviously, songwriting, tune writing, composing, arranging, you know, mashups, improvising. These are all just different, you know, ways of expressing your own musical personal creativity. So we're going to jump into a two-parter talking about real practical things that you can do, whether you're a string player or whether you're a songwriter, a composer, any kind of processes or instruments that you use, or even if you don't play an instrument, it's going to really help you to develop practical strategies for composing your own music. And I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, We have two sponsors. The first is Electric Violin Shop. The Electric Violin Shop provides all kinds of solutions for any string players who want to amplify and go electric, including all your accessories and everything related to electric violins, cellos, violas, pickups, you know, anything related to it. And I love these guys. I really believe that there's nobody else that provides the kind of service they do. If you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, you can get a special discount. And more importantly, you can find their phone number and call them and they'll answer all the questions you have. We're also sponsored by Yamaha. I've been a Yamaha performing artist for almost 20 years now, and I consider them family. I've watched the evolution of the Yamaha electric strings family grow over the years, and they're just an incredible company and an incredible resource for music education for all the stuff I do. So huge thanks to Yamaha for continually supporting mine and other efforts of music educators. So with that, let's get into this episode with Mark Simos. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, We're going to talk about your book, 
2014 published through Berkeley Press, Hal Leonard. It's called Songwriting Strategies, a 360-degree approach. Thank you for being with me today. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it. I uh, was glad that we had a chance to meet at Fiddle Hell. I knew you from Berkeley, but never really had a chance to interact with you much when you were on faculty at Berkeley, but really enjoyed your music so much at Fiddle Hell. I think I told you how much that solo piece in particular impressed me. But also I had a chance to sit in on some of your classes and really enjoyed your approach and the energy you brought to teaching. And of course, this book comes out of my own teaching experience at Berkeley. So it's nice to talk kind of composer to composer, but also teacher to teacher. Yeah, exactly. And I love the fact that your book is called Songwriting Strategies, but knowing a lot of the work that you've done with uh, particularly old-time fiddle players, teaching people to write tunes, right? So you're kind of looking at strategies that might apply for people who are using lyrics or just for instrumentalists that are writing tunes. Is that true? You know, I didn't initially scope the book to do that because my goal in writing the book was really to make it as appealing to the broad songwriting community as possible. That was kind of my mission from Berkeley Press's point of view. So I didn't say to myself, how can I make this interesting to tune writers as well as songwriters? And you could read most of the book and not necessarily get more than a few hints that my own background is really kind of rooted in traditional music. But then when I started working more with tune writers and developing exercises for composing tunes, I found that the approach actually was very adaptable to that. And that's been a nice surprise for me, kind of an unintended extra benefit. Because it turns out whether lyrics are in there or not, a lot of the 360 approach still is a really nice way to broaden your approach to doing instrumental composition as well. And would you say this could apply to maybe writing jazz tunes as well as writing quote-unquote, fiddle tunes, old-time tunes, bluegrass tunes? Yeah, well, I think the question of the difference between kind of traditional dance tunes in, say, a tradition like Irish music or old-time music and sort of jazz instrumentals that you can think of as more kind of heads of tunes, those are interesting structural differences, but I think the same compositional approaches apply. What is different is whether you're creating a tune that's really intended as a a framework for improvisation as opposed to a tune that's going to kind of stand on its own, really as its own piece. So when you write like an Irish fiddle tune, you're not writing something that has to be improvised over to the same degree that that a piece you're writing for a jazz context has. There are differences, I think, between writing a fiddle tune and writing a jazz instrumental, but the process is probably pretty similar. Wow. Um, I mean, it'd be an interesting conversation since I mostly write fiddle tunes and you probably have written more uh, kind of in the jazz idiom than kind of fiddle tunes per se. Well, yeah, I've jumped around a little bit from the standpoint of a composer or a songwriter or a tune writer. I've dibbled and dabbled in a pretty wide array of stuff, but I don't consider myself extremely prolific. You're probably more prolific in that regard. But I wonder if you could tell me more about the distinction you're making between writing, say, a a Celtic tune or an old-time tune that isn't designed to be improvised over versus... Because bluegrass tunes have similar folky kind of structures and heads, and and but then people improvise over them. So what's what's the difference? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Not really a question I got into in the book because, as I said, the book isn't really about genre specific writing. But I'm I'm teaching a class now 
at Berkeley called songwriting and tune writing in root styles. And these kinds of questions are exactly what we're starting to wrestle with. You know, I would say that first, first off, fiddle tunes, say from the Irish or Cape Breton or old time tradition, they're designed as dance tunes. There's room in them for what you might call variations and micro variations, but they're not designed the same way that, say, a bluegrass or a jazz tune that is intended to be played once or twice, and then you're going to go around the band and have different people solo on the tune. You know, that's kind of a different ensemble structure for playing tunes. Yeah, I think that, for example, when Bill Monroe started writing a lot of his instrumentals, he had sort of two worlds he was drawing on, or more than two, but he certainly knew traditional old-time dance music. You know, he traveled around with, was it Arnold Schultz, the fiddle player and the guitar player that he learned from. He played with his uncle, Uncle Pan Vanover. So he knew kind of the structure of dance music, but I think he was also influenced by blues and jazz, and a lot of his tunes are structured more like jazz tunes, even though they're maybe not as, you know, chromatic or out there kind of harmonically. But they're structured kind of like the heads of jazz tunes, you know. They're more ABA structures in terms of the way the phrases are put together. So it's interesting, I think in bluegrass you see those two worlds kind of coming together a little bit to sort of different styles of instrumental writing. That's fascinating to me. I mean, and I've got to say, um, I mean, I need to learn more about from this historical perspective and, you know, looking at the differences. I mean, I guess I tend to gloss over those things or if anything, as a new crossover, somebody who's trying to exist as in almost a crossover discipline myself, I guess I would willfully want to ignore <laughs> these inconvenient truths as I hear them from you. Even <laughs> yeah. if I, even if I were to accept them, I would probably want to sort of, you know, ignore them, but maybe more to the point. I mean, I think, you know, the thing that I'm really eager, I mean, I think it's important to, to you know, to recognize that maybe some of these distinctions are, uh, are real and worth, you know, checking out. I'm super interested in strategies. You're, you know, a 360 yeah. approach, regardless of the genre. I'm just going to say, sure. regardless of any of these other distinctions that might be out there, myself, my students, my, the teachers that I work with, a lot of us are, some of us may be classical musicians. Some of us may have dabbled in some songwriting or in arranging or, you know, but for me, it's kind of like the most basic thing is kind of like, how can I just sit down and try to write a tune? Whether it has lyrics or whether it doesn't have lyrics. And it, to me, it seems like what you've outlined here is a great approach. So would you care to give it like an overview? Would you care to yeah, say let like... Yeah, give you the sort of elevator pitch. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I wrote the book attempting to have it be something that could be applied in multiple genres. And that took a little bit of doing, but I'm sort of proud of the fact that I think the framework in the book is pretty adaptable in that sense. 
So I see the first strategy that I talk about in the book, and that would apply whether you're writing songs or tunes, is, you know, I think when people try to write and they get stuck, a lot of times it's because they believe that the moment of receiving inspiration for a piece and the moment when you have to do the development of that piece have to be happening at the same time. Ah. And I think there's a tremendous power in actually uh, separating those moments because the kind of attention that you need to pay to notice a key, what I call seed idea for a piece and capture that and sort of retain it to work with later and the sort of more focused energy that you need to really develop that piece. They're very different kinds of energy. They are things that uh, might hit you at different times. And so if you can capture those seeds and kind of squirrel them away, it actually gives you a tremendous wealth of material to work with. And that one strategy alone, if you want to call it that, is pretty transformative for songwriters and tune writers alike. And so that's my first chapter I call Song Seeds. And I'd say that's one of the big insights. You start noticing that certain little bits of melody attract your ear and kind of go, that's cool. That's sort of a distinct idea. And those starting ideas are not very long. They're not as long as a whole tune or a whole song. They might just be a couple of bars. And you have to really train yourself to notice them and respect them enough to write them down or capture them in some way. Because when you first hear them, you might go, oh, I'm remembering a tune I've already heard. I like that, but I must like it because I already heard it. Even Paul McCartney, who woke up from a dream with a melody to the song Yesterday in his head, apparently walked around for weeks asking all of his friends what old you know, standard he had dreamed and remembered. He couldn't remember the name of it until he finally convinced himself that it was actually a new thing that he wrote. <laughs> so when your brain kind of takes in a lot of repertoire and then generates something new, you may not necessarily notice at first. And uh, so one of the ways I think people sabotage themselves is they're too critical in that first moment and they don't capture those ideas because they're assuming that it's a fragment of something they've already heard. Wow. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that's amazing. I, I That's actually happened to me before and I didn't think it happened to so many people, but it sounds like it does, that you, you start writing something and, and you think, oh, I think I'm stealing this from somewhere. Right. And I think a good rule of thumb is just if it's popped into your head and if it feels distinctive and if you're having a kind of a, a fresh reaction to it, go ahead and capture it. Because what's the worst that will happen? Maybe you are transcribing a little undigested bit of a you know, Charlie Parker solo that you heard 10 years ago. If it's really plagiarized, then you'll have a chance to sort of catch yourself down the road. But in the meantime, at the very least, you've kind of trained your ear to capture that floating little bit of melody and grab it out of the, out of the clouds and kind of uh, fix it. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. And you may discover that you've actually written something unique that you might otherwise have just sort of tossed away. And now... The big idea that I think you're sharing, if I can try to paraphrase it, is you're saying that we need to separate the idea of getting the seed of the song and then the process of developing that seed. 
to me, that sounds like if I was writing an essay that I would want to kind of have like a premise or maybe an outline isn't a perfect analogy, but like a premise or just a couple core ideas. And I want to write those core ideas down, almost like brainstorming on a page. And then later on, it's going to be filling in the blanks and revision. Is that is that a comparable to you? It is, although, although um, having just spent way longer than I ever wanted to spend on trying to write an essay, as it were, <laughs> trying to write a, cha- a chapter for a, another book on the sing- called the Singer-Songwriter Handbook, and I've literally been trying to write the same 5,000-word chapter for about nine months. <laughs> so I've been going through revision hell on this thing. I would say that from a songwriter's perspective, a song seed is even more fragmentary than, say, the big main ideas you'd want to put in an essay. It's one idea. Got it. Uh, it might be a great line that someone says, and you go, oh, you know, I could imagine that line in a song. It might be a title. It might just be like what might be a great first line or even a line that's going to be buried somewhere in the song. It might be that some friend tells you about this situation and you kind of go, man, that it would be good to write a song about that. I have no idea what the title would be, but I know that that story I'm hearing, that would be a good theme for a song. You jot that down. But it could also just be, and you know, you're a you know great instrumentalist, so I know you can relate to this. You know, you pick up your instrument, your fingers fly over some familiar scales or things, and then suddenly you make a little mistake and you make a little chord change or transition that is like, wow, I've never quite played that before. That sounds cool. And I think capturing just that fragment itself, that's really the powerful thing. You don't yet know what the whole essay is. You don't necessarily know where in your final piece that thing will show up. All you know is it caught your ear. It sounded sort of novel. There was a freshness to it. You had an emotional reaction to it. You might not even know what the emotion is, but just you had a response to it. To capture that, is really a powerful thing to do. And so I learned about this because, you know, pro songwriters use this technique and have used this technique pretty much forever. Songwriters in Nashville call these things their title books or their idea books or their hook books. Now, they're often talking mostly about lyrical materials or ideas that you might write down in words. But I think with the advent of little pocket recorders, most musicians are also carrying around these lists of these little kind of melodic seeds you might have deedled into your you know, recorder or something like that. So another reason that I started the book with this idea is that I think it's really important if you want to broaden yourself as a songwriter to actually try to practice catching those seed ideas from as many different directions and in as many different forms as possible. You try to capture not just lyric seeds, but also melody ideas, also chord ideas, and even things like rhythmic ideas that I think a lot of you know melodic players tend to dismiss as seed ideas, but in fact can be really, you know, really potent.
someone just told me that you know that big Bruno Mars hit, uh, you know, Uptown Funk. It's just one record of the year, and within a week of its winning this award, like three songwriters came out of the woodwork claiming that they had been kind of ripped off by uh, uh, the writers of that song because the big hook of that song is Uptown Funk You Up, Uptown Funk You Up. And somewhere down back in the 70s, someone wrote a song that went, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh. <laughs> See, that's my that's my song. You might go, that's ridiculous, man. Like you know, you're talking about this tiny little rhythmic idea, right? But, but that was enough for Bruno Mars and those guys to just turn around and say, you know what? We're just cutting you in on the copyright. We don't want to go to the we just don't want to go to the lawyers about it because they were watching what had happened with the blurred lines case around the Marvin Gaye family estate kind of challenging uh, those guys. So I think what you're starting to see is that in the popular music world, people are recognizing that all sorts of different elements of a song can have a kind of distinctiveness to it. Now, the legal world's going into conniptions about what all of this means, but as far as just learning your craft as a songwriter or a musician, I think the lesson is all of those things are fruitful seed material that you could work from in terms of writing a song or writing an instrumental. Well, that's interesting. I mean, this idea of a r- rhythmic motif of, you know, da, 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 you know, I mean, if they, <laughs> you know, can they really be busted for just the rhythmic motif? It's a hard to imagine, but you would think that if it's combined with like, the melodic gesture, you know, like if if, right. if they were to go with a different melody altogether, like da 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 da, da you know, would that would that get them off the hook because the melody's so much different, even though the rhythm's the same? Like I don't know, you know. It's, uh, that's what I think is. I think there was a time when everybody would have laughed and said, "Of course, you can't be busted for." you know, for stealing a rhythmic motif if you've changed the melody. But in the new world, it's kind of like, who knows? Once you get in front of a jury, (laughs) uh, because, I mean, some people say that the Blurred Lines uh, song copied nothing but the bass riff, you know, from this older song. Uh, So it's a a quite an unusual thing. So do you ever do that where you take just a rhythmic motif? So I could just take that same motif and try to put like three different melodies to it. Like, you know, like let's try, uh, or. Yeah. That's actually one of the exercises in the songwriting strategies book. That's in fact, in a nutshell, exactly why that book works as kind of a library of strategies. Cause it says, so how do you make a song? You start with seed material. And where can that seed material live? Anywhere in this thing that I call the songwriter's compass. So I have in that kind of metaphor of the compass, these four directions. And the directions are lyric, melody, harmony, and rhythm. Because those four elements, I think, are core to what you might call really the composition of a song as opposed to the arrangement, the production, the performance, things like that. So if you say, hey, I could have a starting idea from any one of those four directions, that step alone is very broadening in terms of your craft because if you start trying to capture rhythmic seeds, your rhythmic training, ear training gets better. 
you start recognizing more complex rhythmic patterns. You start recognizing which rhythmic patterns are compelling to your ear and which aren't. So it helps you in all your rhythmic writing. And then you might say, okay, I got a rhythm. What am I going to do with that rhythm? Well, you might say, let me move strategy now. I'm going to move from my rhythmic material to cast over to melodic material. That's a move in the 360 model. How do I practice making that move? I take a rhythm and I set it to a melody. How do I practice doing that with some flexibility? I set it to a melody, then another melody, then another melody. There are songwriters who literally cannot do that. Once they have a rhythm in mind and once they fused it with a melody in their mind, that's it. They can't untangle them and do what you just did. So I could take, you know, again, I'll, go, I'll try another one. So this would be the same rhythm with a different melody. Right? So right. we just, we've just cast that, that rhythm with a melody. Now I'm going to try one other melody. And you'll notice that a motivic structure that was buried in what made that rhythmic seed interesting kind of followed into your melodic ideas. So you're already pretty flexible in that you didn't do this. Dum, dum, da -de -dum, da -da -da -de -dum. You kept the first note of the repetition and then went somewhere else. Right. But a lot of people basically wouldn't, once they've put one melody to one of those motives, they'd have to repeat it. Ah. See what I'm saying? I mean, the yeah. structure of that rhythmic idea is really the motivic uh, technique of displacement. Ah, yeah. Right? It's, it's five notes, but you're displacing the rhythm. So the idea is you could have the same five notes with a different rhythm. So if it was like... It is the right. same the same melody with a different rhythm. Whereas I use the same first note, but I can also do it without using the same first note. So I could do, uh, you know, I mean, it could be, <laughs> yeah, right. All right. C pattern out of it. Oh wow, that was that was hip. You went uh, completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so you're making like a call. I mean, for a while I debated like is structure another one of these little directions, and instead of for me, I've decided that structure is actually like the the axis in the middle of this wheel. Wow. Because structure can participate in any of these elements. Structure can be reflected in the rhythm, the melody, the lyrics the harmony, and you can move those things independently. This is why these strategies are both generative approaches to help you with composing things, but they're also a kind of self-teaching because you're actually building your skills every time you take that one rhythm and try to set it to different melodies. You do that, you go, wow, I just set it to 12 different melodies, but all my melodies have the same contour. Yeah. What does that tell me? How can I how can I loosen that up? Right. And so you're you're gaining a certain independence of the rhythmic ideas to the melodic.
I love this. I, I really love this a lot. So another step to cast, you know, something that let's say we've now, you know, we started with this rhythmic idea and then we cast it in the melody. Then we can move it into the harmony. So I, I like this one the most, I think. I can't remember. Uh, I'm going to use that as my keeper melody, okay? Sure. And then, yeah. and so I think, I'm, I'm assuming that you would say, okay, so now we can cast it with a harmony. And and so if it was, um, you know, if it was, if it was here. Or we could try a different harmony, you know. You know, or whatever, you know, you could change the harmony, right? And so here's a case where you have, you know, say jazz musicians are very familiar with the idea of reharmonization, but that's often viewed as something where you're starting with a piece that has a melody and a harmony, and now you're going to change right. the harmony right. that sort of is baked into the piece. But we're songwriters, so we're creating it all from scratch, which means now you have a rhythm and a melody, and you're right. Now you're not reharmonizing it. Now you're casting the rhythmic melody into harmony as the next step but you know you could also cast directly from rhythm into harmony without the melody can i try that sure so you might sit there with your fiddle and, and just take the melody away and just go back to da 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 right da, 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 and just ask yourself where might i like to change chords under that rhythmic pattern. Oh, so I'll try that. So what you're doing there is you're uh, you're taking that rhythm into what I'd call the, the the sort of the rhythmic texture of the chords. But what I mean by kind of the harmony is think of that as the harmonic rhythm, like where are the chords changing? Oh yeah. Okay. So so yeah. for example, uh, I, I see so what you're saying. So I have to see. Better sing... way to do it is actually like. Sing the melody. Sing, sing the sing rhythm. The, sing the rhythm. Right. Tunelessly while you play chords. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be like da 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 da. Right. And so, and I could change that differently. I could do. Um. How about this? Da 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 da. Right. Or I could do da 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 da. Or something like that. Well, I see what you're saying. That's right. So every one of those beats of that rhythmic pattern, you know, is a place where you could change a chord or not. Right. So now there's a sort of a harmonic rhythm that's being laid over. So that's why for me, rhythm is one of those elements because what you might be hearing is what will eventually be the lyric rhythm, you know, right. like syllables to every one of those beats. Right. Might be melodic notes. It might be chord moves. Right. And usually songwriters that haven't practiced these techniques, these things are all really fused in their minds. So right. you'll notice that the first chord progression that you tried was a steady kind of moving a chord in every bar. Right. If you're not thinking about it too much, it's easier to sort of do something kind of steady like that. Once you realized you could pay attention to it, you started more irregular rhythmic choices in the harmony. And now that's your rhythmic sense exerting itself in that element of the actual, of the chords of the harmony. You can even do just one chord over the whole thing. Like, 
I mean, right? There's nothing. There's no rule that says you couldn't, or you could be like da 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 da. And each one of those quarter notes could be a moving change, right? I mean, right? I don't know. Rhythm expresses itself in the realm of harmony in slightly different ways than in melody and lyric. It's important to know those ways. But it's just a convention that the harmonic rhythm is moving slower on average ah. than the flow of the syllables in the song. Ah, yeah, right. You know, and so there are songs where you know the chords move slowly while the lyrics happening, and then around the lyrics, then now you'll get a bunch of fast chord moves. You know? Right. So there's lots of possibilities there, but you might sort of say. So, what does it take to get your brain to the point where you can play with those possibilities? I think it's these little strategies. It's these right. practicing, these little casting in each one of these directions. Well, it's also just seeing it for what it is in a way. I mean, you're analyzing the creative process and you're boiling it down to its elements. If, if I had to make a stab, and there's something that I do with a lot of the students that I work with, especially classical musicians who haven't done much improvisation or composition. And it all has to do with saying, and, and I'm just interested in your take on this, Mark. I think that the idea of creating something is about choosing. You're making choices and a series right. of choices. And so what are we choosing from? Well, I like to think we're basically choosing from the infinite universe around us or the infinite universe inside of our heads. Or if you don't buy into the concept of infinity, at the very least, it's a very, very large thing. So then, you know, the idea that I've always assumed is that what makes it hard is that there's so many choices. So like if you sit down in a restaurant and they give you a menu with, you know, 10 pages, you sit there for half an hour trying to decide what you want to eat. But if they just like, Hey, you, you can either have waffles or eggs or steak. You're like, Oh, well, that's easy. I'll make this that's choice. Easy. That's right. No, it's really a fascinating question about that. And I think that we started the conversation talking about fiddle tunes and kind of writing in genres like bluegrass or Celtic or something like that. You know, one advantage of having a genre is, in some sense, style narrows your choices. Right. You want to write something that sounds like an Irish fiddle tune, your melodies are, there's certain canonic figures and shapes that are going to show up in those kinds of melodies that make them sound Irish, and it's not an infinite set. And you might say, well, that really constrains my freedom, but if what you want to learn to do is write something that sounds like a good Irish tune, that those constraints are valuable to you. So there are people who feel like the only way you can teach creativity is by giving someone a genre and saying, you get to pick from this set of things. And so there's even an approach to teaching songwriting that kind of says, uh, my colleague Jimmy Kachoulis wrote a book on harmony and a book on melody. In his own research as an ethnomusicologist studying like African drumming and different world music traditions, in a lot of those traditions, start with a set of kind of ideas and so there are sort of standard moves and then variations on those moves. If you want to give somebody a tool to be a songwriter where they're not setting out to be writing in a particular genre but they want to be original, I think the song seed idea is a nice one because it says in that sense here's what constrains your choices. It's something that actually your brain notices and finds interesting and speaks to you. That's your starting point. If you start collecting them, you'll get an awful lot of them, but you won't get a million of them. You know, in mm. a given month, you'll get a few dozen or a hundred. 
now you've made a selection out of that infinite universe of ideas. The selection is the things that your musical brain noticed as you went through the world and, you know, heard rain dripping in drain pipes and heard rhythms in it or heard scraps of melody gives you your starting points for all of this. So you can start from a set and kind of say, how do I choose from this set? And that's where I think genre or style gives you some help. Or you can start a little bit more experientially in terms of seed material that comes to you and that you kind of capture out of the stream of your experience as a starting point for your creative work. I think both of those are good strategies. These are big strategies we're talking about now. These aren't the little moves, but they're pretty powerful families of starting points, you might say. And is there any reason to think that you couldn't use any any other initial constraint, like such as like let's say a groove or a tempo? Like if I said, yeah. okay, well, I'm going to write a song in six eight, and it's going to be this tempo. I mean, that's a starting point, right? Is there any or or that it could be about a certain subject matter? I'm going to write something about gray skies. Could you pull out of a hat? And almost come with these things, like if you had a hat with subject matter and a hat with the different types of grooves and another hat with tempo and another hat with, you know, harmonic rhythm, could you pull these things out? And that would be opposite of the idea of finding something in your life that inspired you, but it would be like sort of just like pulling from random ideas. What do, I mean, what do you think about that? I think that that's a really good point. And there's a couple of ideas buried in there. And, you know, the reason I decided in songwriting strategies to put seeds as the, the main kind of starting strategy, and there was a time when I had a, literally a whole other chapter or two about all of these other approaches, but I realized that for me, the big work I was trying to do in that book was really this notion of the compass and pulling out these elements of melody, harmony, rhythm, and lyric because the ability to work independently with those elements is is really, I think, core to developing your craft as a songwriter. Got it. And I felt that Song Seeds was the most valuable kind of starting process to give you a sense of independent work with each of those elements. Got but it. I know, for example, I've heard Beth Nielsen Chapman talk about how she loves to sit down with a, she has a doctor rhythm, like one of those old beat generators. She said, I love to just like, spin up a rhythmic groove at random and kind of say, how do I respond to that? And then start writing to it. Now, I call that process a different process than seeds. And here's why. If you start from a 6-8 groove, you didn't invent that groove. That right. groove would be common to hundreds of tunes in, say, salsa or whatever style you're in. So it's a starting point 
what's it a starting point for? It's a starting point for you to sit down with your instrument, hear that groove, and start generating material on the fly. What I'd call kind of flow-based creativity. Nice. And that's also a great way to create, but it's a different way of creating than catching a seed, which is a single kind of very focused, fragmentary idea that you're going to save later as a starting point. Got it. So I call this uh, essentially jamming, you know, to generate things. And I think that a lot of instrumental musicians in particular find this a very natural way to start. And this is where all the work that you do as an instrumentalist on learning your scales and chords and those kinds of techniques serve you in good stead. You turn on that groove and someone says, start playing. Where do you start playing? Well, now you're dipping into that infinite sea of starting points, but at least you've got that groove that you're responding to. You know, so you're not starting with a complete blank slate. So, so if I was somebody who had a hard time just being inspired in my life and finding a muse and coming up with a seed. Let's say that I, I have my, you know, my voice memo on my phone here, you know, glued to my hip all day long. And I was like, okay, I'm going to find a seed. I'm going to go on top of a mountaintop. I'm going to go in the city. I'm going to like have some experiences today. And I'm going to wait for like this, this inspiration to come from the heavens. You know, I'm going to listen to the nature sounds and I'm going to, you know, but I just couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything that I want to capture. We could go to this kind of flow based method where we sort of randomly select a groove or a tempo or a theme or you know whatever a melody a harmony all the elements on your compass any of those could be used i mean whether it's sure. a, a chord uh, a chord progression or a harmonic sense the four things on the wheel again are harmony rhythm melody and lyric and then the access is structure so in, in theory we could use any of those things as a starting point to jam or to almost brainstorm and then from that we might capture a seed is what you're saying bingo because what happens is you sit there let's say you know you're jamming with friends you get a listen you know play Blues in D, you know, 12-bar blues in D, start playing, right? You could play for half an hour, and if you're a good player, you might be doing all sorts of great things. Of course, to be an instrumentalist, your goal is to be able to stand up on a stage and make that jamming sound so good that it's a performance people want to listen to for half an hour. But if you're a songwriter or a tune writer, you can use that half an hour as essentially generating raw material and then what are you going to do? You're going to go back and listen and go, was there two bars that I played anywhere in that 15 minutes that was really, like, unique? Wow, that's a fresh idea. That's not just a quote from, you know, the 30 other great soloing blues guys that I've so You know, that a little piece of something kind of unique popped out there. Now a songwriter or a tune writer will say, let me take that and really build architect around it to make an actual composition. And then, of course, that composition, once it's well-structured, now you've got your 32-bar. Now people can jam over that, and now you've got the world of improvisation over pieces, and that's a whole other layer of creativity. Uh, so for me, I do, you know, there are people that believe that composition and improvisation are exactly the same thing. I feel like they're sort of different moments there are different kinds of creative skills that are very complementary to each other, but the actual process feels different to me. To me, improvisation feels like it's happening in a stream of time. And composition, you're sort of stepping out of that stream of time and you're kind of going, 
let me put this piece here and then this piece here, you're kind of thinking about it almost more like a mosaic where you're assembling it with a little bit more thought. Well, it's all thought, but less temporally streaming thought, as it were. Does that? Yeah, I like the idea of you do an improvisation, you're doing the best you can in the moment and you're interacting with what's happening in that moment. And it can be a beautiful thing. But the idea of a composition to me implies revision, the revision yes. process. That's right. So it's hard because if you do that revision really well, an average listener listening to what you've created when, might have the illusion that it just poured out of your head spontaneously. I mean, someone could listen to that beautiful solo piece that you put at the end of your album and go, oh my God, that guy's just a genius. He just picked up his fiddle and like out came this thing that sounds like Bach. <laughs> and I'm like, so it's a beautiful piece, and I, but I don't think it demeans the piece for me to say, I bet you spent God knows how many hours stitching that thing together and revising it and kind of going, no, I've gone off the deep end here, and that's called editing, revision. You know, that's the, that's the work to make it sound like it just popped out of your head. Absolutely. And, it, and it's funny that you mentioned that piece, which is the postlude on my record, American Spirit. That's right. I specifically wanted to create a piece for unaccompanied violin, sort of in the tradition of unaccompanied works from Bach, but that would allow for improvisation and would allow for a, a different kind of harmonic and melodic language. It's a little more, you know, uh, popular or American or whatever. And so the way that I wrote that piece was really a combination of of catching seeds, as you've talked about, through improvisation and jamming, and then right. you know, and then revising and editing on those improvisations, you know. Did yeah. You so record yourself doing those improvisations, and then go back and listen to the recordings and kind of play over and repeat and edit. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I did, and sometimes I just kind of improvised and tried things in the moment, and then said, "Oh, I like that," and I wrote it down, and you know. Right. So it was a mix. It was a mix of more what you might think of as a traditional through composing process, sitting down with pencil and paper and trying this idea and trying that idea, trying 20 ideas and being like, oh, there it is, versus, okay, I'm just going to play the whole piece. I've got I've got an idea of my chord progression now, and I'm just going to kind of jam on it, you know, and, and do like 20 takes in Pro Tools and go listen back and find the scraps that I like the most and and literally stitch them together, which, yeah, you, you, you hit the nail on the head because, <laughs> you know, a lot of it is literally stitched together. The, even the final performance is literally literally stitched together but but it was it got the result well, that's that's all that matters Thank you so much. We're going to have part two releasing very soon. Or if you're listening to this all later, then look for part two. 
I thought it was a media enough of a conversation. We just kept talking. We just couldn't get enough of just kept going from subject to subject. And I really wanted to uh, put it all out there. And that's part of what this podcast is about. We're not limited by uh, the time. We can go long into long form stuff when we when we have that luxury. So I'm glad to be able to do that. And as always, I want to thank our sponsors at Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop. Please do share, like, review us, make sure you're subscribed, and we will see you on the next episode.